Our second lesson comes from the book of Mark. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, him as Jesus, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked, and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded, said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals, it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Often this scripture is presented as a cautionary tale. It's a warning. A cautionary tale about money or about prioritizing good works over receiving God's grace. The man in this story, Matthew's gospel calls him young. Luke's gospel calls him a ruler. Mark's gospel just spares us most details and calls him a man. Usually he is the anti-hero. Be careful that you don't become like this man. But I hope, and I, I really think that maybe I've read the passage incorrectly before. And that this man is not a lost cause, and neither am I, and neither are you. Do you know this man? He is the 20-year-old in the tweed jacket who walks up to the microphone during the Q&A at a lecture to ask a question, but as soon as he starts asking the question, you can tell that it's not really a question but he has a point that he'd like to make about the postmodern philosophy class that he's taking, and he's going to have to work real hard to make it sound like a question rather than a lecture. I'm maybe too familiar with this man. He's the white missionary couple that I met in Uganda who had just uprooted their whole life and moved to Uganda because they were going to teach Ugandans how to build houses and at the same time, I got the sense that they thought they had a corner on what it meant to follow Jesus and they were going to tell everyone. And it turns out in Uganda, they've been living in houses since the dawn of civilization and have been following Christ in faith and repentance for quite a while as well. You know this guy. He approaches Jesus and takes a knee. 
He calls Jesus good. A little flattery never hurts. He says, Jesus, what must you do to inherit eternal life? He asks a question that he knows the answer to. He believes himself to be good. He calls Jesus good. There's a kinship between them. And I think he's trying to stoke that kinship. And Jesus uses a little rhetorical chess to unsteady this man's assumption about him being good by saying that, good, not even I am good. Only God is good. Jesus creates a distance between following the commandments and being good. There's a difference between the two. The man doesn't understand that. I'm not even good, Jesus says. You know the commandments, but no one is good. Often our knowing the answer, in fact, does the opposite of good. Then Jesus lists off a handful of the Ten Commandments, to which the young man responds, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. We don't need Matthew's gospel to tell us that this man is young. His answers give him away. This guy is the worst. And then the miracle happens. This line that separates the mature from the immature. This wonderful line. Mark, who never gives us more details than we need, says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And the giants in the faith, the true giants, are not the ones who have made the greatest influence or held the most power. They're the ones who can listen to a spoiled, entitled, naive kid and then look at him and love him. Here on display is the spectrum of humanity, the rich young kid in Christ, the one who thinks supremely of himself and the one who emptied himself. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You lack one thing, he says. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the man heard this, he was shocked, it says in our text. I'm not sure shocked is the best word for what the Greek is here. It's the Greek word stignazo. I'm always hesitant to correct what you know, a collection of PhDs and linguists have come up with in every translation. But I guess the fact that there's like a hundred translations means there's at least some debate. Uh, the word stignazo in Greek is pretty rare. I was looking into what, what, what it means, and usually it's used to refer to weather. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is when Jesus is uh, quoting an Old Testament prophet talking about the sky in the last days, and he says, the clouds were red and threatening, stignazo. It's a word that sort of paints a picture of a front coming in. I think a more literal translation of the word might be that his face clouded over like the storms, like the storm clouds were about to break open. His face looked like a front had just rolled in on it. Jesus, still looking at him in love, watches him walk away in grief, Lureo. The clouds have rolled in, and he walks away, thrown into sorrow. And this is the moment in a lot of the theological commentaries 
and sermons that, that, that I've come across on this where they will talk about how this is the one case in the New Testament where someone is given the offer of following Jesus and they refuse to do so. This is the one story about a man who just couldn't bring himself to follow Jesus. And there's a part of me that wants to make this rich, young, entitled man, the whipping boy, to wax poetic about grace and how this guy just doesn't get it because he's too rich. He's too tied to his laws and his money to accept Jesus' grace. But I don't think he refuses Jesus. His face clouded over, and he was filled with sorrow. And that doesn't sound to me like a man who has refused what Jesus has just asked of him. It sounds like a man who has been bowled over by the cost that will come from following him. Sounds like a man who has just been leveled by the words of Jesus. And I don't think we can assume that that means that he is about to refuse Christ. He could have scoffed. There are people that refused Christ in the New Testament. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes were told about the people who don't believe in Jesus. They laugh at him. They figure he's out to lunch. This man could have counted Jesus as a lunatic like some did. He could have scoffed and walked away or talked about how he had given alms to the poor. As a law-abiding Jewish man, this guy could have rattled off his qualifications about maybe how he's taken care of the poor. He could have defended himself, but he doesn't. He's leveled by what Jesus has to say. He's devastated. It's the first time in this story that we see this man honestly, without pretense or facade, and perhaps it's the first honest moment that he's had in a long time. He's disabused of the notion that he was good, that he could be Jesus' star pupil. He walks away crushed. And Jesus has been two steps ahead of this guy and every other guy in every conversation that he's had. He's, Jesus has been two steps ahead of this guy in their interaction. I believe that Jesus really did look at him and love him. And I also believe that Jesus knew what his words would do. I believe Jesus knew the effect that his words would have. And I wonder if it is possible that the steps that this man takes, the honest steps that this man takes away from Jesus are perhaps the first steps he's taken towards God in his life. Of course, it's unfair to speculate about what he does when he gets home, if he sells all of his possessions and comes back and follows Jesus. I don't know. Maybe I'll write some historical fiction about how I hope this man's life turned out. But I believe that Jesus loves this man, And I believe that Jesus leads him toward a place of honesty and that being there for the first time was terrifying. His reaction to Jesus in that moment is the first glimpse of honesty we get from him. Honesty is the only place from which we can encounter Christ. It does not always require anxiety, pain, or grief to bring us to that place where we can no longer hide, where we can be our real selves before God. But often when it does cloud over, we are finally able to be still and know that the Lord is God. 
Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment says it this way, the darker the night, the brighter the stars, the deeper the grief, the closer is God. It takes sorrow descending like thick clouds over this man for him to realize that in the words of Rowan Williams, grace, not goodness, is the key to our healing. And that to accept grace, we have to find a way to be at a place where we are honestly ourselves. The Hebrews passage that we read begins, that, I don't know if you caught it, but the first half of that passage is terrifying, scary. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It's able to judge thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before God, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. What a frightening and apocalyptic image. A sword separating joints, digging out marrow, bare, naked, in the garden. The first reaction that Adam and Eve have, the first reaction that sin causes is that they cover themselves in shame at their nakedness. They hide. They hide from God and from each other. Who could ever withstand the shame of someone knowing me completely? Of being laid bare. Of having to render an account from a place of entire vulnerability. Jesus sees the young man And his words pierce. They lay him bare. Any fake goodness, any false humility, any pretending to be fine, pretending to be more than he was, all of that is stripped away. He is entirely human, which is, I think, exactly where Jesus needs him to be. And after the young man walked away, Jesus looks at his disciples and said, it's going to be hard for that man to get into the kingdom of God. Children, it is so hard to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to get through the hole in a needle for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And they say, "Who? how then is there any hope? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, no one. No one. For humans, this is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. After we are given this terrifying image in Hebrews of being exposed before God, the author of Hebrews makes that beautiful pivot that the gospel makes. Everyone will be laid bare before God. However, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. The young man is laid bare and it hurts A cloud covers his spirit and he cannot imagine that a better day will ever come. 
But being vulnerable, being honest, being laid bare is the beginning of good news. We start there and then we come to this table because we have a great high priest who sees us completely and who looks at us and loves us completely. Another line from Rowan Williams I heard this week was, make the resolution to be where God can get at you. I think we have to start at a place of honesty if we're going to encounter God's grace fully. And maybe that means starting your day with 10 seconds of silence. Just 10 seconds. You can do it. Or 10 breaths. Or maybe it means approaching a relationship differently, more honestly. Make the resolution to be where God can get at you. I believe that's the place where Jesus leads this young man. I'm going to hold out hope that this is not the story about the one person who refused to follow Jesus. I'm going to hold out hope that the honest steps that this man takes away from Jesus are perhaps steps in the direction of God. I'm going to hold out hope that somehow in his grief and sorrow and doubt, Christ walked with him. He is not a lost cause. Neither am I, neither are you. And I want to close with a prayer from Thomas Merton. Pray with me. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so, but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.